because uh, like I say, the opportunities are so huge and the, t- the, the, the different paths are myriad. It's hard to, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people out there who go, mm, I sort of know that I've got to start thinking about this, but I don't even know where to begin. And that, and that is something that I enjoy helping with because I can be a translator between the two worlds, I suppose. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 97 of the Rotary Wing Show, originally recorded February and March 2021. Welcome back from wherever you are in the helicopter world. It is awesome to be able to hang out with you again. What are we chatting about today? We are looking at having a plan B for your current job or your helicopter career. That could be for a whole bunch of reasons, which we'll go into later. Now, you probably know someone in your life or have come across this type of person that they are always angling for the next position. They've got their eyes out there for the next opportunity to open up. They are busily networking and are pretty good at self-promotion. And sometimes there's, I guess, a bit of survivorship bias there at play. And they always seem to land on their feet and maybe get the the job or position that others are going for. That can definitely be done in in a negative way where the person is getting ahead at the expense of others or perhaps is very... Uh, flexible with their value systems. But it's probably for many people listening to this, the, the norm that they don't think overly much about the future or, or have more of a short-term focus. By the time you put in a, a hard day's work, you know, you're ready to, to head home and ready for a break and then get back into it the, the next day. So I guess one of the, the goals of, the, of this episode is to break you out of your normal thought routines and habits and getting you thinking about where you might want to go in the future. You might be completely happy in your current position and happy to sit there for the next few years, and that is absolutely okay. But things outside of your control can happen. Say, for example, I don't know, a, a global pandemic, or on a more individual basis, you could be in a car accident driving home from work. And it might be a good idea, at least having thought about in advance, about a possible plan B. The other related concept I quickly want to talk about is that of having a a luck surface area. We tend to think of luck as a random chance type of event, that it's pure probability and a a bit like lightning striking, being in the right place at the wrong time, or maybe it's the other way around if you you get hit by lightning. We look at people and we say they are are just lucky, and sometimes it absolutely is. None of us choose who our parents are or what country we're born in or what our natural talents are. But wherever we are starting from right now, there are things we can do to increase our luck surface area. So picture a dartboard or an archery target, or maybe for our purposes, you might want to picture a hole in the trees that you have to auto-rotate into. What we want to do is chip away over time and, and do activities that are going to increase the size of that target so we have more chance or probability of the, the lucky arrow hitting our surface area. If you've been out there chopping down one tree a day in that small clearing that we are picturing, then on the day you need to auto-rotate, you've got that much more room to, to make the landing. 
And that's what we mean when I'm talking about increasing your luck surface area. That, you know, what are the relationships that you can go out and build or skills or qualifications that you can start working on that you might not need today, but will increase your luck surface area going forward so you have more chance of catching those lucky breaks you have a, a bigger target. It's just being a little bit more mindful or deliberate in what we do and stretching our, our timeframes a bit more. Rather than just focusing on the, the day's work ahead and what's coming up this week, it's thinking about, okay, where could I end up in five years' time or where do I want to be in five years' time? So I guess with that long setup, today we have Jerry Grayson back on the show. Jerry was last on back in episode 29. Back then, he had just written his book, Rescue Pilot, and we talked about his experiences in the Royal Navy doing carrier ops and then as a SAR pilot. And at just 17, when he graduated, he was the youngest pilot ever in the Royal Navy, which I've got to guess is still a record today. A couple of high-profile rescues saw Jerry become one of the most decorated peacetime search and rescue pilots in the UK Royal Navy. He was awarded an Air Force Cross in 1980 for his efforts. In his book, in episode 29, Jerry covers these flights, and they are a super hairy staff. After leaving the Navy, Jerry flew film work all over the world, supporting the Formula One races, and last time Jerry was on, we talked about filming on the set for the Black Hawk Down movie. Jerry and his crew produced some of the the very first aerial shots coming out after Hurricane Katrina passed through New Orleans. He's been involved in a number of Olympics, even a James Bond movie thrown in there. Jerry's second book has been out for a while now. It's called Film Pilot. As a listener, you can download a free chapter of the book, and I'll talk about that after the interview. We are talking drones today, or RPADs, as CASA has turned them. And yeah, I know it's not the, the most palatable topic for people who have spent a, a small fortune on flying skills, but that's why I wanted to highlight Jerry's background and pedigree as someone with an amazing career as a helicopter pilot. So let's find out about one possible plan B or side gig that you might want to have in your back pocket. Jerry, last time we chatted, we covered your film work and flying on, on Black Hawk Down. And one of your uh, compadres there, I guess, flying with you and told a few stories was Dennis Kenyon. So, yeah, he yeah, unfortunately passed away there in, last year in 2020 and you know, the, the few dealings I had with him and then seeing his Facebook posts come through, he, I think he was 88, but he was just full of life. Like he never seemed to, to taper off. He was just one of those people who was bubbling all the time. So what were you, I don't know, did you, after, were you able to keep in contact with Dennis during the rest of your, of your career? Yes, very much so. And um, I know you had fun interviewing him and we were um, having quite a bit of uh, email banter backwards and forwards. He, um, he aspired to to write novels, so we had quite a uh, after I'd published my autobiography, we had quite a bit of uh, exchange of various manuscripts, and um, uh, and he was always just such fun and what an amazing aviator. I mean, I still just love watching the uh, the, the YouTube clips of uh, him performing, particularly in the uh, in the Enstrom, and uh, he seemed to be able to coax things out of a helicopter that the rest of us only dream of. Well, I mean, there's a clip because, you know, I guess I've been lucky enough to fly a, a 269 or a Hughes 300 here. And he starts off that routine where he's, you know, rotating around on the, on the, on the toe tip of the skid. And I've never gone and practiced it, but I've kind of as been flying around thinking about what it takes to, to actually do that. And that's not a small amount of skill. 
No, no. I mean, he, he had it flowing through his veins. And I uh, I, I did send a, a, a message uh, at the time that he passed uh, saying, I, I guess there's um, a lot of angels up there uh, looking forward to getting some flying instruction from him. <laughs> um, he's just such, such a character and so full of life and uh, uh, and wonderful that he was able to, to go on uh, flying in that way right up till, till the end. He was... Um, he he had a certain sadness about him because he he'd lost his son some years before and uh not sure he ever quite got over that but anyway it was just uh, i count myself very very privileged to have to have known him and to have flown with him we when we were working on black hawk down together we just behaved like children really he had a, a very healthy um uh, disregard and uh, for uh, too many regulations i mean he you know he knew exactly where the line was but uh his uh, his stories of uh, of coming head to head with uh, with the authorities on occasions and and how that panned out was always hysterical to listen to i i, I shall miss him very much oh, there you go well we finished up there you had the first book out so rescue pilot and i think the film pilot had either it, i don't think it had come out at that point you were almost ready to, to release it so i've just grabbed uh, it wasn't a good read synopsis, uh, basically a synopsis of the book there quickly with a couple of stories. So I've cherry-picked a few, and I'm just going to see if you could walk us through a couple of things, and then uh, we can tease people to go and, and get more of the details in, in the book. Let's see. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Formula One racetracks. Now, I, I, I missed out when our squadron went down to the Gold Coast Indy and were racing through high-rise buildings chasing the Indy cars down there. And uh, Certain events happened where we weren't invited back, but... What was your experience of, yeah, how, how did it feel? Like, was it fairly surreal chasing a, an F1 car down the, the main straight? Um, it's, a, it, it's a very good um, example of, of what my life became, I suppose, with the, with the film pilot job. The thing about Formula One is it is an unbelievably professional setup, the broadcasting of it particularly. And uh, it's developed over the years. I've watched that development and participated in some of it along the way. Uh, and it very much became the, their routine to to introduce innovation uh, of, of various kinds along the way. And they've worked up a routine over the over the whole weekend where the pilot knows exactly what uh, what he's going to do on the uh, on the practice the free practice day. The pilot is also um, you know, practicing the moves. Usually, it'll be the same pilot who, who did it the year before. You know, they're quite uh, loyal in that regard. So, he, you know, he knows what he's doing, but uh, he also knows that it's going to be stressful and that it, it, it's going to need his best care and attention. Yeah, he'll rehearse the moves, and then at some point during the day, the director, who the pilot's in, in, in obvious contact with, We'll say, okay, I've been watch, watching what you're doing. I, I like moves, you know, one, five, and, and 12. And so you're going to show him those again. And he'll go, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go with those plus, plus a couple of other ones. So the director does know when he's going to come to the helicopter. And uh, we're listening to the, to the commentary. So we, we know who is the big story at any particular moment. And then the uh, the pilot and the cameraman have obviously got to work very closely together to coordinate a move. And it might be, for example, one of the classics is to, is to find somewhere where you can get really low in the hover so that you're looking at the racetrack through the grandstands. 
uh, and then be able to just climb gently and uh, pick up the, the car that you want as he's coming down the straight and then set off on a, on a pre-rehearsed move. You know, there's a, there's a lot of precision involved. You're obviously low level a lot of the time and it's a fine line. I was watching the, uh, uh, the Russian Grand Prix and the, the, guy, the guy who flies that one is, is constantly below the, uh, the level of the, of the lampposts. And uh, it looks pretty hairy on that one, but but the the rest around the world are, are, are pretty standardised. And then comes race day, and uh, the, about halfway through the race in uh, South, not Sao Paulo, I'm sorry, in uh, South Korea, the cameraman said to me, uh, "I think I can hear sweating in the front seat." And he was absolutely right. I was uh, I was drenched by then because the better you are, the better you get the more the cameraman is is pushing you to do a, 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 a an even better job and get yourself into positions where you know we would pride ourselves on, on trying to produce a shot that you wouldn't necessarily have said was a helicopter shot until about five or six seconds in and you go oh hang on a minute that's a helicopter shot i've got to rethink what i've just seen but great great fun uh and uh it was actually, yeah, my, my, my very last flight in helicopter was the, the, the Korean Grand Prix. And I, I crossed the uh, the line alongside Mark Webber and uh, landed about two minutes later and got out. And it was, a, I think it was something like a year later and I'd been doing all sorts of other things. And somebody said, do you still fly? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. And then I decided to count up the months and went, hmm. Perhaps I don't anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so that was, uh, one was a bit of a surprise to me. So you mentioned like these different moves. So are they actually like a, a written down? Do you have a, a playbook, like a knee pad, and the director's got one in the, in the broadcast? And, it, you know, it'll actually say, I don't know, like move four. Or is that, like, are these given names or is it fairly scripted? Um, yeah, no, they're given, they're given numbers. And you never know quite which one the director's going to ask for next. When he does ask for one of those numbers, then you position yourself so that um, you're, you're ready and waiting for, for when he says, you know, coming to you in five, four, three, two, one. And uh, but the actual move itself is not written down. That's something which is part of the whole uh, film skills, I guess, uh, where you and the cameraman get to a point where you totally understand what you're each doing, and he's feeling the helicopter through his bottom and you're feeling his camera moves through the, the little monitor that you've got in the cockpit. And between you, what you're trying to do is coordinate in such a way that neither of you are, gonna, are going to run out too far out to the limits. So, you know, I don't want to be flying it in such a way that the, the, the cameraman's going to get the skids in shot, for example, or, or where the angle of change as the, as the car goes past is, is too much. So I can help by uh, yawing in, in those circumstances. And uh, he, he is, is trying not to hang on to a shot so long that you're going to run out of, uh, for example, pedal. You know, you can very often end up going quite swiftly sideways and it's a it, it's a move that if you are climbing at the same time you can you can hold on to it for for a few seconds but the cameraman knows when you're about to lose it and 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 one or other of us will will tell the director yeah, come off me in five so yeah it's a it's a rehearsed thing but it's something that's you know in in your bones in your blood while you're doing it 
And how much prep or, or how do you prepare for a particular track? Do you, I don't know, do you watch a lot of Formula One coverage leading up to it so you, you learn what the, the different shots are or, and then do you turn up a couple of days early and, and do, you know, recce of the racetrack where you're looking at maps to, to get an idea of what's around terms of obstacles and, and terrain? Um, yeah, all of the above. Um, I've spent my whole life following Formula One, so I, I know most of the tracks um, in my heart. But obviously, huge amount of recce in just the same way as the drivers do, really. But from, from our point of view, we're looking for where there are poles, where there are wires, uh, where there's likely to be a, a big conglomeration of people, and uh, and all of those sort of things, which then... As you find those things, it means that you have whittled down the opportunities that you've got for a, for a helicopter camera move to perhaps a dozen, which you know readily suggest themselves. And you know some some uh, tracks like Career, in fact, are very flat. Some like uh, Browns Hatch and Sao Paulo are, are, are very undulating, and we we love the undulating ones because you can you can look as though you're um, shooting from much lower than you really are. So in Brands Hatch particularly, you can get down to um, a level where you're, you're watching and following the car through the trees, which, you know, you're always looking for something that is uh, a, a more interesting angle that, that you can't achieve in other places. So, yeah, it's, it's, you're led into those, those shots by virtue of what's around. And um, and then you practice it and develop it and, and, and get to a point where you go, okay, well, we've got a good number of shots here that we can offer up to the director, all of which we're happy that we can carry out safely and, and time after time. All right, well, I'll lead you through a couple of other bits and pieces in the book then, just to take, a, again, a, a couple of snippets. All right, the, um, the space shuttle landing, what was the, what was the involvement and how did that uh, work out and what was that like to do? Uh, just unbelievable. I mean, we, um, I'll tell you how that came about. It was interesting because it, it's um, uh, one of those points in life where one thing leads to another, leads to another. So uh, I, I found instrument flying very, very difficult initially in, in, in initial training. I was bad enough at it that I really had to you know, practice and practice and was determined to improve. And in fact, I got to the point in the, in the military where I was an instrument rating instructor. And the whole of that uh, experience led me to understand more about how you can fool the brain. Uh, I, uh, either it is fooled by circumstances, and by that I mean when you're under the hood and, and you know, you, um, you're doing unusual attitudes. Uh, and once you understand that and the, the way that the brain and the, uh, your, your balance canals in your, in your ears, for example, work together, then you can find ways of deliberately fooling the brain. And so when I um, was you know, well into my film flying career, we found that there was a market for simulator rides. And so we would, we would put together a, uh, a five-minute experience in flight, which people would experience while sitting in a hydraulic platform. And you could use the combination of what the eyes saw and the, uh, and the platform performed uh, in order to fool the brain into thinking it really was going through that um, that flight through through a deep canyon or, or, or whatever it might be and that led on further and further to filming from other types of vehicles over a period of some years we, we put together 
um, many, many um, ride films, as we called them. And then we thought, well, look, let's try and do something meaningful with this uh, rather than it just being entertainment and put a proposal to a museum in Spain to generate a, uh, uh, a simulator ride uh, as if you were going into space. So there were really two aspects to this story. The first was filming. It was just an extraordinary experience under, under uh, NASA's guidance and the company throughout, of course. We went up uh, the launch pad at 39B and filmed from the top and filmed every single aspect of it. And then uh, on, uh, as we had finished, the, the, the next day, Atlantis was, was landing. So um, I said to our host, um, you know, we're, uh, we were thinking of uh, positioning ourselves over here, uh, wherever it was, in, in order to watch the landing. Is, is that a good place to watch? And he said, uh, uh, mm, it's all right. I think you should watch it with me, though. Said, well, where do you watch it from? He said, on the runway. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it was just quite the most remarkable experience to, to stand there. And uh, uh, we, we, didn't, uh, we weren't needing that for our film. We were just experiencing it. And so um, uh, all of that film went into uh, the, the simulator ride experience, which is is still there in, in Valencia in Spain. And uh, about a year after we'd installed that, the uh, director of the museum uh, dropped by our office, which at that time was in London. And we had lunch together and he very quietly handed me an envelope. And uh, I peered inside, pull, pulled out uh, a bunch of photographs. Couldn't believe it. It was pictures of Neil Armstrong going through our simulator ride. Uh... And I said, I cannot believe you didn't invite me. But he said, I'm so sorry. He said, I completely forgot. It was such a busy time. And he forgot. Great. Thanks, man. And, uh, but I did get the chance to say, well, what did he think of it? And he said, uh, he, he proclaimed it the, um, the closest uh, you could get to going into space without actually doing it. So I was, uh, that's one of those little proud things that I carry with me from that experience. Oh, there you go. I have seen, it was Buzz Aldrin, though, I think he put a, a VR headset on and there's a, a VR uh, basically experience where you, you jump on and you launch in the rocket and, and uh, you fly and you, know, you walk on the moon and all sorts of stuff. It's very cool. So I have seen Buzz Aldrin do that one and uh, he had a big smile on his face. But no, okay, fair enough. No, I, I had pictures of you flying like a chase helicopter as this uh, shuttle was coming in to land in, and, and, uh, and following it in on a helicopter, but uh, you're on the ground. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, you can't quite keep up with it with a helicopter. Um, well, you usually have a, a, another astronaut chasing it with uh, an F5, I think, but, and filming from that. But um, no, I, I would love to have done uh, one of the launches uh, where the helicopter goes and sits up at about 3,000 feet and, uh, and you know, begin looking down and then it comes up towards you and past you. That would be quite something. Oh, yeah. All right, the last one then, just pulled from the book, was the, uh, the Q80 oil fields. What was, the, what was your role there? Yeah, that was uh, another one of life's little experiences that fits into a, a small box somewhere. We, uh, we went out there to film the, uh, the burning oil wells after the, uh, the Kuwait-Iraq war. And um, uh, it was for a very famous uh, German film director called Werner Herzog, and he had said that uh, at some point in his life, he would like to make a film on another planet. And he, uh, this was probably the closest he came to doing that. But he was 
uh, he, he was delayed in getting out from Germany. And so we had about uh, 10 days with just myself, cameraman, sound man and, and camera assistant, creating imagery, which uh, I think, honestly, to this day, is still the imagery that I'm most proud of in helicopters. And, uh, and then Werner came out for, for the last three days, took the, the shots away with him. I think it was something like 72 rolls of film, I think, we'd done of 10 minutes each. And uh, he took it away and turned it into a quite extraordinary film called Lessons of Darkness, uh, which won an Emmy. And, and I have been on some fairly major movies where, you know, talking with actors over lunch or whatever, and they've said, oh, my God, that's one of my favourite films ever. I think you can still find it on the, on the net. Uh, and, uh, you know, from the flying perspective, just extraordinary to, to, to be able to capture imagery that literally looked like it was from another planet. I mean, the whole, whole desert covered in oil, towering smoke up to about 7,000 feet before it went off, uh, blew off to the Himalayas eventually. And there's a, actually a black layer within the, the, the snow in the Himalayas. And um, uh, the experience, the chance to film something like that, and from the aviation point of view, we were using a, a long ranger that had previously been used for, for oil work, obviously for transporting people and survey work. It was uh, a beautiful machine. It had just a, um, a nose mount and a side mount. It was before the days of, of Jara Stabilize. It really had the airspace to ourselves. So we were able to experiment with the type of shots we did, sometimes very high, sometimes right down at, at desert level. And always... You, know, you think of low stuff as always having to be fast, but in this case, it was always fairly slow, just in order to drink in the enormity of, of, of what you're looking at with lakes of oil and, and, and fires everywhere. Really a very special experience. So how many wells burning at a particular time? So what, as you're flying and you're looking out and around you, like how close are these wells together and what was the, what did it sort of look like? Okay, so um, the, uh, uh, the end of the war, there were 750 wells burning. The three American firefighting organizations uh, came straight in, and, and, and after a while of getting used to putting out well after well, the government said to them, how long do you think it's going to take you to, to get all of the fires out? And they said about three years between us, at which point the uh, Kuwaiti government really put out a, a call to the rest of the world saying if anybody has a team who think they can put out an oil well fire please come and so it was um, a, a remarkable piece of work where I think around 15 or 20 different teams from from different countries there was a, a, a an Iranian team led by a, a lady there was a, a Romanian team a Bulgarian team who turned up with a, a tank with two MiG-21 engines mounted on the barrel of the tank and it was towing a water bowser which fed water into the into the back of the jet engine e-flux and um uh, and put the fire out that way and so uh it actually happened that from 750 wells in i think about april they were all extinguished by october so we we were there for the last part of that I was flying in and around about 40 or 50 that were that were still on fire when we first got there. Right. Okay. I was, I'm just trying to picture sitting there in the seat and flying and looking out and seeing, you know, what you would have seen outside the cockpit. So it's crazy. 
Oh yeah, you you, you do get a bit. Uh, you got to be careful not to get too fixated on what you're filming. I mean, we we had a shot that uh, was just very very gently coming down from these huge towering columns of, of smoke and descending gradually down, gradually down towards one of the wells and, you know, concentrating very hard on the shot and the stability of the helicopter in order to capture that with it not being stabilized. Uh, and then I broke off from the shot and, and was surprised to find that the perspex in the door next to me was starting to feel a little hot by then. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, no. All right, well, we've uh, I've gone off track there a little bit, but uh, let's bring it back to, to talk about some of the things we're doing. And I, I guess uh, to tie it all together, we're going to chat about some of the, the challenges in aviation for uh, uh, career professionals, and especially in the helicopter market. And, and you would have seen, uh, a lot more than me, I guess, the, the different cycles that happen in the industry in terms of demand for work and then, then drop-off in work. So have... Yeah, has that been fairly constant the entire time you've been flying? Um, that's interesting. I, I Once I've been out of rotary for a couple of years, I started to realise that, yes, we had had cycles through that period, but actually I had probably um, lived through the halcyon days of the helicopter. I mean, the, the helicopter really came into its own, I suppose, in the in the Vietnam War. And it was uh, also around that time or soon thereafter coming to prominence in so many different areas of work. And uh, we've had all these little ups and downs along the way. But I I, I hesitate to say this on, on your show, Mick, but I, I'm beginning to believe that the, the days of the helicopter are seriously numbered now. Um, the, uh, there, are, there are changes which... Most helicopter professionals kind of are in denial about, but they are definitely not very far around the corner. So um, I I feel terribly sorry for, for people who have been aspiring to get into it and are now trying to get into it at a time when you know the, the combination of economics and, and COVID has made life so difficult for, uh, for operators. And been trying to really do what I can to to help fellow rotary aviators to to um to transition into something else all right well let's explore a couple of things because again it's it's education and gives people an open mind in terms of where they're going to go next so yeah look the couple of notes i had here in terms of oil and gas i guess we're seeing more offshore wind farms so it might be a bit of a you know flow from from one industry into into that uh, as you mentioned, the pandemic at the moment has made, uh, and, and I guess we're lucky, like there's all kinds of industries disrupted by the pandemic. So it's not just us, but the airline side, maybe more so than the, the helicopters, but it's definitely been a big effect. I, it might be a geographic thing, but there's definitely areas of oversupply, whether it's government schemes or things that have maybe changed the, the number of supplier pilots. Uh, so there's definitely an oversupply in certain areas, especially at the, the first, that first step in the door area. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's, have you always felt that's been the case where it's, it's always that first step that's the hardest? Um, it, it has always gone up and down. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, way back, I always thought there was going to be an airline pilot and then there was a, a glut of pilots on the, on the market because um, one of the UK airlines went to the wall and, and put everybody out, um, out of work. 
So there were so many pilots on the market at that time that British Airways, or, or BOAC as they were then, um, showing my age now, but um, they uh, were no longer taking on students at Hamble, which was the UK uh, training school for, for airline pilots. And I was just devastated by that because I'd spent my whole time at school, you know, aiming at one thing. And that's how uh, I then ended up in the military and ended up flying helicopters and haven't regretted a moment of it since. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the um, I'll give you one example when you mention oil and gas. Okay, I, were, I chaired a conference in London over two consecutive years. It couldn't be done last year, of course. It was called the, the Commercial UAV Show. So, you know, drones at, at, at the higher level. And um, I shared a platform with uh, uh, the guy who is in charge of all forms of innovation at BP. And so his responsibility is to find ways of making it more financially efficient to pull oil out of the sea. And he told a story about drones. And he said, you know, we, we, we started off by using little drones to inspect the underside of the rigs and it's very easy because the operator stands on the on the platform and uh, and, he, and he takes the drone down and, and using the camera he's able to inspect and record and so on and so on and we realized after a while that the most important aspect of that was that the health and safety was so much improved and so we said to ourselves well where else can we use automated vehicles of some sort uh, to help with our health and safety. And the, and the first thing that came to mind was the, inspecting the legs, where otherwise they would have to send divers down, the saturation divers, where they, you know, they've got, I think it's nitrogen, isn't it? They, they get into their blood. And, and, you know, this is a dangerous thing to do. And they said, well, let's commission somebody to, to create a, a, an automated vehicle that can go down underwater with which we can inspect the legs from you know where it, where it uh, enters the water until it uh, hits the, the um, seabed, and the uh, they went on and on and on. Going, well, perhaps we could do this with a with an automated machine. Perhaps we could do this with AI. Blah blah blah. And he got to the point where he had concluded that within about a year from now, every single task could be automated on that oil rig to the extent that they would no longer need an accommodation rig tethered alongside. They would no longer need to fly people backwards and forwards because they would have, they reckoned a maximum of three people on the, uh, on the platform who were there simply to supervise the, the, the automated vehicles and, and, and robots on the deck. So uh, that's how extreme it is and how quickly it's coming and that's from the from the work you know from the mouth of the guy at bp whose job it is to organize these things and and i don't think that that my compatriots in helicopter aviation have really wrapped their head around how fast it's changing and how much it will have changed when the when the landscape settles there's a, a particular graph i can't remember if it's a uh... The, the name of it, but it talks about the the innovation curve, and it has uh, when when something doubles at a very small level, it's very hard to see the increase. But then as that gets bigger, you get that that 
exponential sort of curve. Pretty much everyone's seen all the, the pandemic <laughs> modeling recently. And then the same thing, it sort of tracks along really, really low. And then once it starts moving, it really starts to, to, to move up. Uh, so it just depends on, on where in that uh, development curve uh, you are for those things. But okay, well, we'll talk about drones quickly, but let me, I'll just quickly cover off a couple of these other bits and pieces that are, I guess, why it's important to think about this sort of stuff. You mentioned me out of flying for a little bit there before we hit record, but the insurance premiums at the moment have seen quite large increases and possibly tied back to what you're saying too about just that public acceptance of, of risk with things going towards automation. And yeah, it's just, I think it was, it was probably only this week, a couple of days ago, uh, I was talking to someone who was saying, and again, I don't have insight in the US market, but there's a couple of companies now starting to group together to self-insure rather than go through insurance companies just to try and handle that insurance increase and maybe put some pressure on insurance companies to, to lower their premiums again. So whether it's something that you'd need some pretty big bodies here in Australia to, to get together to, to do that, but to, rather than be at the mercy of insurance companies, it is grouped together to have people self-insure. Uh, so it's just one thing is just another pressure, uh, especially for junior pilots, because companies looking to put on low-hour pilots are taking a, a fairly large hit in premiums. And then the other... Yeah, absolutely. And I, Sorry, I was just going to say that you're absolutely right. And, and the, the cost side, and that's just one element of it, of course, the, the cost side of helicopters, which has always been accepted or absorbed in, uh, into the budget because the helicopter could achieve such extraordinary things that it couldn't be done any other way. When another way does come along and it doesn't have those costs associated with it, therein lies the danger of the, of the exponential change that you just mentioned. And the fact that you talk about the pandemic is a very, very good example. You know, if, if, if I had said to you 18 months ago, you know, I, I predict that the world is going to look like this. None of us will travel across international borders and, uh, you know, everybody will be wearing face masks and, and so on and so on and so on. You, you would probably usher me out of the door thinking I'd completely lost the plot because there comes a point at which humans are very, very bad at imagining things like that. You know, we can be entertained in a movie for, for 90 minutes with something like that but we don't come out of it going yeah i think there's a good chance of that happening or very rarely uh, so i i think that the uh, the march of the exponential march of technology and, and the way that it imp impacts us as a helicopter industry uh has the potential to produce circumstances in a year's time or in two years time where our landscape looks so different, it's unrecognisable. I mean the I mean the employment landscape. Yeah, and then just finish off my list there. So uh, medicals, uh, it's always just one of those things outside of your control. But you know, you can be perfectly healthy, fit, thirty-four years old, and something turns up in a medical, and suddenly you're looking for a, a career that's that's not in a cockpit uh, as well. So things like that too. So. So I guess what we're talking about here is, is uh, plan B or whether it's a side gig or just having something uh, you're thinking down the track of if, uh, if you need to move, um, where to move to and how you can most use your, your current skills. And that's, I guess, what we're, we're going to chat about. So, yeah, let's, let's look at what you're currently doing and what are other options without starting from scratch in, in perfectly fresh industries where helicopter pilots or, or aircrew can leverage their skills? Sure. Well, yeah, I, I wish it had been 
uh, my plan B. I wish that I had thought ahead to having a plan B. Where I'm at now, in, in, in you know, within the world of drones, UAVs, uh, is really plan A, Mark II, because it caught me unawares. I, I, I had not done the thinking ahead and the imagination. And uh, the, the, there's quite a good reason for that. For, for mm, at least 10, 15 years, I'd been turning up on, on film sets or, or you know, documentaries, dramas, and there would be a model helicopter there because it was the, you know, the buzzword at the time. And, and people thought, well, we can get uh, much cheaper footage using a model helicopter. In fact, we can do much lower stuff with a model helicopter and therefore we'll hire one of those. And the, the guys who flew these things were way over-promising what, what they could achieve with it on film. And so it was a, a constant disappointment, but it seemed to be something which film producers would uh, still ask for and still try it out because, you know, they were only being exposed to it sort of one at a time. So we'd had 10, 15 years of, of model helicopters saying, oh, we can do this, this and this. And, and us as full-size rotary exponents going, you're dreaming, you can't achieve that. And they couldn't. And so we'd sort of been uh, reassured and, and, and that kept uh, repeating itself that really we had a place in, in, in the skies filming things that was uh, going to stay for a very long time. So when the drones came along and we all first started to get an inkling about what a drone was, we didn't really pay a lot of attention to it, but good grief, it moved so fast. You know, no longer were you having to control uh, what's a difficult thing to control anyway. And when, you, when your seat is, uh, you know, your bum is in, in, in the front seat, when you're standing on the ground looking at a model helicopter, it's it really is. I've had several goes at it and found it nearly impossible. But uh, the drones achieved such stability with the uh, with the basic concept of having four contra-rotating props. You know, you take away all of the torque reaction. You take away so many things, and by then, of course, the the software had advanced to the stage where all of the difficult things that a pilot does. Is, is dealt with autonomously. So uh, they crept up on us. They were just another form of model helicopter in the first, in my head in the, in the first instance. And by the time I woke up to the fact that they had already started to take my bread and butter work away, uh, it was nearly too late. And I, and, and I kind of went, mm, well, I've had a good innings at helicopters. I'm getting towards that age where, you know, the medical starts to become more of a looming thing each year and, and where, you know, there is ultimately an age limit at which you, you can no longer fly commercially. So uh, I sort of went, mm, okay, well, maybe my career is, is just in its twilight zone and, and about to end. And, that was when, when my wife said, surely there is something that you can bring to the party here. I'm thinking, well, I really do not want to be competing in a job that I have loved with a lot of uh, teenagers with their, with their baseball caps on backwards, uh, listening to weird music while they fly their flying machine. And it was quite a depressing time. It didn't last very long because 
there was a sort of light bulb moment watching the TV one day when um, quite a professional outfit were were creating shots from drones, but it was really the same shot over and over again. There was no creativity there. And I realized very quickly that although the flying machine itself is incredibly easy to fly, largely because of the autonomy that's built into it, even when you're manually controlling it. But the people who were buying drones, training on drones and, and launching them into the air very quickly got to the point of, well, what am I going to do with it? And the obvious thing is I'm going to go filming with it. But I realized that they really had no idea how to how to create an image from a drone. Uh, and so I be- began teaching that. I wasn't a great uh, proponent for um, drones at that stage. I fly one perfectly adequately, but it was really how to fly it from my experience in helicopters that I was teaching how to capture the imagery. And we uh, we began a course called uh, Flying the Lens, which uh, we were doing face-to-face, you know, three, four, five people at a time um, for a couple of days over a weekend. And uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed doing that. And the, and the big aspect of that for me was that it was a realization that uh, about 80% of my pilot skills were transferable and that that comes as a massive opportunity. And the, the message really for, for the guys out there who are looking at their careers and going, mm, am I going to get another job? Or am I going to lose the one I've got? Um, and as you say, to, to look towards a plan B, my message is that if you are a commercial pilot now and you think that, that you want to have a plan B, then uh, an entry into uh, drones would mean that you entered in in the top 5% of people who are doing that job because our skills are transferable. They are uh, all the things that we sort of take for granted. Um, And frankly, it starts with the work ethic. And it starts with the fact that you concentrate on what you're doing. You don't half do the the job of being an aviator. You leave everything behind on the ground and you concentrate 100% on what you're doing. It's knowledge of navigation. It's knowledge of weather. It's knowledge of airspace. It's knowledge of radio procedures. And all of those things that we take for granted, you can carry forward into the, the, the drone work and you are already on day one way way ahead of the people who have come from a completely different career got enthused about drones got a license for themselves and are then going well what, what work am i looking for so i i wish that i had adopted that as a plan b in parallel before the, the bottom fell out of my world it would have been so much easier doing that than having the, the gap in between of having to, uh, I think the word's pivot these days, isn't it? Yes. Um, to, to a different form of flying. Now, you obviously had the, the film skills to really bring across into, into the drones to do the film work. In your note, you, you said that you had like 20 different industries where you could do exactly the same thing. It wouldn't necessarily have to be having a film background. It could be a, a utility, I guess, asset maintenance type background as well. So did you can you list off a couple of those other areas that were outside of purely just drone filming that you can think of oh absolutely i mean the the um the range of 
of industries into which drones have become not just applicable but dominant is, is quite extraordinary. And I'm, I'm looking at a list here, which is uh, uh, the biggest growth area is, is agriculture. And within that, for example, you've got uh, sensing of livestock using thermal, either to find your own livestock or to uh, eliminate uh, feral livestock, mapping crop health. Uh, spraying operations you know that the, um, there's one guy uh, in Australia who has specialized big time in, in spraying bugs and I don't mean eliminating bugs I mean taking bugs that are good for a crop uh, and applying them to that crop now that's a very very specialist thing uh, he does it all day every day all over the country because he's cornered that market you know, it's, it's into things like yield monitoring and, and pests and weed reduction. The, um, there's a thing called a hyperspectral sensor, which means that you can tell from the air exactly what's going on with a, with a, with a plant on the ground. And um, uh, hyperspectral does it in about 400 bands of the spectrum, such that it can precisely tell you not just that that's a weed but that that is a particular type of weed and in this particular condition and the guys at uh, Massey University in, in New Zealand uh, are developing have developed uh, a thing called map and zap and what that means is that a drone autonomously flown I mean you've got to have, have an operator watching over it but flying a, a, a predetermined pattern goes up and down a, uh, a crop or a paddock or whatever and it can if you set it to say okay if you found let's say Patterson's curse you know one of the one of the really bad weeds if you see a Patterson's curse we want you to destroy it and next to the hyperspectral sensor on the drone is a laser and the laser fires at the uh, at the weed and destroys it at the base now that's is you know it sounds like science fiction but it's another example of, of, of a specialist particular area that you know one's imagination only a couple of years ago could not have brought you to the conclusion that that might even be possible and and then you you expand that one outwards and you go okay so what's the implications of that well the implications are number one that the, the farmer does not have to go up and down and up and down in his paddock uh, crushing crops with his wheels in order to uh, in order to a apply weed killer, and number two, weed killer hasn't got to be applied at all. So no longer do you get the runoff into the rivers and all of the the problems that we've had in this country of, of mass fish deaths, and then it leaches out into the sea, and we have all of the problems with that. Just imagine how changed the agricultural landscape potentially becomes as a result of that technology. And uh, that, I mean, that's one of my favorite examples, but you know, getting back to the, to the broader question about, about what sectors, it crosses inspection of buildings, all sorts of events, corporate promotions, product launches. You've undoubtedly seen the, uh, the Intel uh, uh, formation drone team where they've put uh, something like, I think it's 1,500 drones up with LEDs. They were flying them at the, uh, what's it called, the, uh, the Vivid Festival in, in Sydney last year. And just an extraordinary aerial display, the likes of which we've never seen before. 
there's the stuff like uh, like parcel delivery. Now, I I thought that was a gimmick. I thought it was real hype. And you know, I was so fed up with uh, with reading about how you could have your pizza delivered to your home by a drone. All right, perhaps it's possible, um, but there's a lot of problems with that. And and particularly as a as a as a aviator from manned aviation, I kind of shrugged and went, "What you know? Whatever is the point? What a gimmick! Nice headline, but really, what's the point?" Well, I'll tell you what the point is. The uh, which one is it? A UPS, the the American um, Parcel Service, have a uh, a video of a of a uh, one of their delivery vans driving to to deliver something to a farm, and it drives to the end of the farm track, and it puts the little parcel into the drone, and the drone flies automatically and lands outside the farmer's house and drops off the uh, the package, whatever it is, and flies back. To the van, and I'm going seriously. What? Why would you do such a gimmicky thing when the uh, uh, when the vans had to drive that far anyway? And the answer to that is that UPS worked out that if they did the last mile of delivery for every rural delivery that they carry out, so you just uh, the truck stays on the uh, on the main road and it dispatches the drone to, to Farmer Giles's home they worked out that they would save in america alone 80 million dollars per year now that that type of uh, economics is irresistible and again the landscape of the thing changes and what seemed to be a um a hype what seemed to be a gimmick i suddenly got it and there are so many other industries like that and that seems a bit more achievable short term rather than having like a central you know DHL depot or something with you know, hundreds of drones leaving the depot um, and going long distance so that you know that last little hop there seems you know you, you can picture that I, I hope I'm not talking out of turn but there's a, uh, a student we've had recently he's actually working uh, he's got a side job here with Google in uh, here in Australia with the wing project and they're demoing this sort of stuff too and trialing it the take was that it was less about the delivery and more about the data capture of how you manage a drone fleet and the, the software behind it that uh, Google was interested in because then they could obviously on-sell that and be a, a platform provider for traffic control of drones rather than necessarily actually trying to compete in the, the drone delivery market. And so that was his take. It was just a, it was a, a way of having a drone fleet out there for data capture more than the actual end goal of delivering products. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, and I think you're right. And uh, I don't think people realise how far the uh, the air traffic management system has come with regard to drones. I mean, there, there are some very, very serious bodies. Well, all of the all of the aviation bodies who have embraced this and have addressed it and are getting very, very close to long-term solutions that will work with the integration of, of, of automated flight with, with manned flight. The, it's interesting that there, there are three countries which are universally regarded as being way ahead on this, and that is the UK, Switzerland, and Australia. Uh, and that's because the, uh, the authorities have, have recognized the problem early on, put effort into it, done a lot of very real consultation, 
uh, invited uh, technological geniuses to, to, to bring their gear to the party and are getting very, very close to being able to integrate in a way that means that passenger drones, for example, really are just around the corner. It's not a pipe dream. It, it, it has had a lot, of, um, a lot of effort put into it, a lot of money put into it by some very, very big people. I'll give you an example again. Um, the, the, the same uh, UAV conference that I was chairing, we had the guy who's in charge of innovation for Bell, lovely guy, and and he was explaining how uh, the, uh, the the Uber drones, if you like, that they have um, designed and which are now flying, be it not yet commercially within cities. There are many cities in the United States which have already committed to it. And he was saying, and here's the opportunity, boys. He was saying that uh, they have designed a, uh, a four-passenger drone to carry five because they reckon the biggest obstacle to, uh, to, to, to in- integration, the biggest uh, obstacle particularly to acceptance by the general public is, are you really tomorrow going to get into a flying machine that hasn't got a pilot? And therefore, they have built in a seat for the pilot. Regrettably, it is a bit like the old joke of, you know, the, the cockpit of the future will consist of a, was it a pilot and a dog? And, the, and, and um, the, the pilot's there to feed the dog and the dog's there to bite the pilot if he looks like he's going to touch anything. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a truism in this because really the pilot will not have anything to do. It is a a truly automated machine but he's got to be there because otherwise the, the passengers won't get into it i thought coming from the mouth of the top man at bell that was uh that was again a big insight into into what's going on and what is potentially an opportunity all right so i've got a couple of things just have been making notes that have been going through and i guess because you you're in there and you're on top of the news so you might be answering a couple of these things from you know, i guess pretty common questions from from helicopter pilots so say you have that, that quadcopter personal city transport uh, that's, that's life-size and taking five people and, and a pilot. What's the general prevailing view out there? If you, if you lose one of those rotors, is, is it just the fact we're going to have such high reliability electric motors? Or what's the, you know, you've now got four possible engines that, that could fail. And I've seen small drones with AI and that be able to recover and, and basically spin themselves down to counteract the, the loss of one rotor. But what's, what's the general thinking for those larger, larger size drones? Well, if you, you know, it's a, it's a risk management and risk comparison thing, isn't it? We've, we've all had failures of some sort in our flying machines. Some of us have had, you know, big ones. And, uh, but I don't know the numbers. I don't know the, the the relative statistics, but the majority of failures will come from, I guess, engines uh, and blades. I'm talking about helicopters at the moment. So, you know, engines, either piston engine or jet engines, they have problems. You lose an engine. If you've only got one, then you auto rotate softly to hopefully to the ground. If you've got two, you maybe you go into running landing or whatever. Blades, a bit more difficult, but, you know, how, how often do you hear of a helicopter blade failing in flight? I, I don't know what it is per, you know, 100,000 flying hours, but it can't be a very big number. 
So the if you think of all of the moving parts that are in a helicopter, most of which are interacting one with another, and therefore they need, you know, the lubricated bearings and all of those sort of things. And then you compare that to an electric engine. It, it, you are absolutely right, Mick. It is the electric aspect of it that is incredibly efficient, because, or not just efficient, but safe, because there are no interacting parts. You've got a, uh, a, an electromotive force that is, that is turning the blades, provided you've got you know, one very reliable way of connecting a blade, which, by the way, is a fixed blade. It's not, it's not changing angle of attack because the fact that it's driven by electrics means you've only got to speed one up and slow one down and you've got immediate control over it. So the, 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 uh, the safety aspect of something that you build in that way to be driven by an electric motor is inconceivably higher in safety factor than the way we've been driving helicopters to date. I, I, I mean, I've, I've started from the, from the, the, the perspective initially um, exactly where you're coming from at the moment, which is, yeah, but because, you know, that's our natural tendency because helicopters have been our love, helicopters have been our life, they've been our, our bread and butter. But, guys, honestly, we, we, if we don't recognize what's coming, then we really are being ostriches about it. And, and I don't know, sorry, I hope I explained that well enough in terms of the, the, the safety factor involved. No, that's good. And as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, as Teslas or all these other electric, electric vehicles are, are rolling around out there with essentially four electric motors in, in one of the wheel. So I guess we're talking, yeah. when you talk about, if you, if you count how many helicopters there were in the world and how many engines there were, and then you count how many electric motors are going to be out there driving wheels on cars. Now, obviously, it's much less of an issue if the you know, electric motor on the highway stops and you just roll to a stop off to the side. But that must flow through when you have millions of electric motors out there on, on roads, that same technology then going into large-size electric motors when they do get into uh, flying machines. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, no good, it's no good comparing... You know the 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 the. No, sorry. Let me let me take a step back. If you if you talk about vehicles, vehicles encompass everything from a really from a bicycle to you know one of those huge trucks that uh, that you see flying around um, Queensland with uh, multiple cattle moving out of the back and everything in between you know cars and, and, and motorbikes and buses and all of those things come under the word vehicle well the same is true of drones you know the the, the expression uh, encompasses from one end of the scale to the other and you know it's no good comp- comparing the statistics with the equivalent of a bicycle you know the sort of hobbyist size drones with the sort of money and work that's being thrown at it by the likes of Bell, for example, and, and by the way, Airbus also already doing extraordinary things. And they, uh, it's a whole different ball game. It, it, it is a, coming from companies who are already well-versed in manned aviation and have already existed in that for you know, many generations. 
who are, are now going, okay, this is the way forward. We need to address it. We need to address it now. We need to have our product ready because we don't want it to be like Tesla where, where one outfit gets a lead and becomes totally dominant to the extent that other people find it hard to catch up. As we all know that other car manufacturers have been playing catch up and they're about five to six years behind what Tesla are doing. So I think that it's that uh, it's understanding that, you know, the expression drone is no better at defining a thing than the, than the word vehicle. Roger, is, is one more because I'll get you to expand on then we might talk about if someone, you know, how, how you take your first steps in, if you're going to have a, a you know, side plan to, to take the first steps there. The, the value added, sure. last time we spoke and, and on emails, you said a lot of the actual things you're doing now is that the drone goes out, does the job and comes back. And that part seems like it'll become, if not already now, a fairly low skill activity in many cases. But now the value add is then the processing of whatever the drone's done. So in many cases, can be footage, and then you're turning whatever the drone's captured, whether it's LiDAR or video, whatever it is, into a, a product. So there must be a whole service industry then sort of one layer back. So you, know, you might be the drone operator, you go and, and capture whatever it is with the drone, but then adding value on the back end of that to then sell to the, to the customer. So what's involved with that, that sort of second layer? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the, let, let's take the um, the uh, the flying itself as a given. Okay, so we we come at it from with the skills that we have in our pocket anyway. So things like navigation, weather, you know, charts, etc. Uh, and then we are given a flying machine, which is very clever. Which we, uh, you know, there's some skill involved in in programming it to do what you want it to do. But you do literally then just press go and it goes and does it and it, and it comes back and it comes back. Uh, if, it, if it is discovering problems within itself, if it begins to lose its signal back to you, it, it, its default setting is to come home. So, yeah, that's true. With a, with a variety of, uh, of different sensors, you know, the basic camera, the hyperspectral that we talked about earlier, thermal, we, we're used to that sensing IR. LiDAR, which again, actually, funnily enough, as we have the uh, automotive industry to thank for this, that LiDAR has come down in, in price from you know, initially many millions of dollars to, uh, to put one in, on a helicopter. And then it's hovered around the uh, several hundred thousand for, for many years. Well, you're now down below 10,000. And the reason for that is that it's LiDAR that te- tells uh, an autonomous road vehicle and what the environment is around it so there is such a huge need for them that their prices come down enormously so you take those type of sensors and the drone is just there to move the sensors around so that autonomous flight can accurately capture uh, an image of the ground using those sensors and then as you rightly say it's the post production of that which is really a big part of the job the uh, we are used as as manned aviators to getting out the cockpit and you know it was a uh, a good landing and everybody enjoyed the flight and and we wish them good day and we we fill out our tech log uh, and then it's off down the pub the job is is over but in this case there is a headspace shift 
to understanding that the flying is not the be all and end all. The flying is the beginning of the story. And as you rightly say, it's the product out of the back end that you need. And in, in my particular area of, of mapping, the, uh, the sort of products that come out are very large, two-dimensional author mosaics, we call it. But basically, it's a, you know, like one very big uh, aerial photograph that's been uh, many photographs that have been processed together, not just joined together, they're processed together, such that at any point within that photograph, there is no distortion. So you can measure to within one or two centimeters accuracy on the, on the surface of the earth. And, and therefore, you can plan anything you like, whether that's building there or you know, building a road or pipeline or overhead power line or whatever you like. So in that regard, a 2D author mosaic has become an utterly essential part of managing anything on the Earth's surface. And, and it's that kind of sentence that rolls off the tongue that illustrates the sort of opportunity that we're talking about. Similarly, because of the way in which it captures, I won't go through it in detail now, but, but it, it captures actually a three-dimensional image. And you put multiple, multiple photographs that you've taken through uh, a processing system that means that out, out of the back end, you actually get a three-dimensional model. And it is so accurate in, in both in dimensions, in the way that it looks, that if I give you a, a three-dimensional model of, for example, you know, the, the hill down the road, then you can fly around it as many times as you like in whatever variation you like within your computer. And therefore, there is another area in which uh, helicopter work starts to disappear because uh, it used to be that if you, if you captured one flight over that hill in your helicopter, well, okay, that's fine. You, you, you have forevermore a record of what you did on that flight. But you can't go back retrospectively and change it. But when you've created a three-dimensional model, you can go back retrospectively and change the flight that you fly around it. So those are all ways in which the existing um, status quo with helicopters are, are, are changing rapidly in the background in ways that that's quite hard to, to wrap your head around sometimes. All right. So what's the, what's the shortest path? Oh, sorry. What, what's the, the shortest path to employability then? If you're at a standing start, you've got your CPL helicopter in your hand, you've got a basic understanding of, of, of the industry. What's the, yep. the path then to one, be able to fly the drone, but then also to be able to add some value on the back end? What are, what are the courses or the, the things you, you need to, to go out and learn? Sure. Okay. Well, um, first there is getting your, your drone license. And uh, the regulations on this change, from I was going to say from time to time, they change quite regularly, but they're settling down now into, into um, uh, more like what we're used to where um, here are the regulations and they will get slightly changed from time to time. So uh, getting your license consists of going to uh, a certified trainer and doing one of their courses, which usually lasts about a week. There are some try to fit it into three days. It's really not long enough. It might be long enough for you know, a trained aviator, but it's, it's not for most people. 
and in any case, I did a one-week course because I, you know, I wanted to uh, to look at all those familiar subjects, but through the the eyes of a of a drone pilot rather than a helicopter pilot. I did mine with FPV Australia. FPV stands for First Person View, which is is how drones operated using a you know the the screen image that's coming from the camera. So FPV Australia um, taught me for a week, and at the end of it, I ended up with a uh, a flight license. The uh, other guys on the course, because they didn't have radio licenses, also ended up with a radio license. And, uh, and now you are good to go and fly professionally up to a, a certain scale. And, the, and those are graduated scales of, of weight and size of the drone. And we should probably put links to a few of these things on the page afterwards, Mick. But the uh, the, the next step is is really to to think through uh, what are the types of uh, activities where I'm interested in doing it, and there is a commercial and potential there. Now, in, in my particular world, I, I operate one day courses as an, an introduction to to mapping and all the various subjects that one needs to look into in order to go down that path and there are many other types of courses around for for um, different uh, drone specialities and i i particularly love teaching drone mapping to uh, ex-commercial aviators because you can take a lot of stuff as given and move rapidly into the you know the deep dive on the subject of, of where to get work, how to get work, and, and, and what sort of earnings you would make and that kind of thing. It's really just you know uh, getting to fly a drone and then choosing what area do you, do you want to go into. And having chosen that area, it then becomes, well, you know, am I going to invest in that equipment myself or am I going to go and work for somebody else? And in the first cases, Quite often, it's an, it's an entrepreneurial thing where somebody says, okay, I've, I've got uh, good connections in the, let's say, construction industry, or, or hey, I'm a farm boy, I'm, I'm used to agriculture and a lot, of, a lot of agricultural friends. What can I do with this drone that is going to uh, enable them to either save money or make more money? And thereby, you end up in an entrepreneurial position. Have I, have I explained that well enough? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a bit evangelical about this these days. So I tend to ramble on a bit. No, look, it's just give people somewhere to start if they were, you know, thinking of you know what we've been talking about. It's something they want to dip a toe in the water and, and go and have a look at. I've just been looking at job ads here, and then one of them was a marketing manager for a, a solar panel firm installing solar panels. And part of the job ad is, you know, we'll, we'll train you to use our, our drone. And they're using the drone just to take photos and promotional videos of their uh, the solar installs. So I quickly looked at the type and jumped on to work out if they actually did need a, a drone license or not. And they, they didn't for that particular one, I don't think, because of the uh, the weight category. But, uh, yeah, that was, you know, something completely different. But it would have been yeah, <laughs> interesting to see how my CV – I haven't had a response yet for back for that one, but how my CV went against uh, other people for, for that having a flying background. <laughs> flying a drone for, and, for solar and, cells. And, yeah, and that, and and uh, it goes further than that because once the solar panels are uh, in place, they need cleaning. Yeah, um, because their efficiency goes down when they've got dirt on them. So, you know, this is <laughs> this is not something to um, send people out to do with a uh, with a hand washer across you know several square kilometres of solar panels. 
so again there is there is another opportunity and another uh, speciality which uh, you know some people find themselves then doing virtually nothing else for the rest of their life but yeah I, we should probably just uh, give some impression of the costs involved here yeah um the if you get if you're going to do a professional uh, drone license you're probably talking uh in the high 2000s low 3000s for for a week's course from which you will end up with the full professional license the type of drones range as we've said from the tiny to the huge but to have the sort of rig that that i'm talking about for uh, for, for mapping for example you know without getting into the esoteric stuff like uh, thermal imaging but if you're talking about just basic mapping in three dimensions and to be able to produce a hologram of a building for example th then you're probably talking around about the sort of three to four thousand dollars australian of, of drone equipment and a, a special course like like the ones i run on mapping for example my, my next one is uh, in three weeks time on the 18th of march and i i do this through also through uh, fpv australia and that costs just under 500 australian you know, in in the um, in the overall scheme of things, and the sort of numbers that we're used to with with helicopters, it is perfectly achievable. It's not a, it's not at those sort of levels, and it's why one can afford to become entrepreneurial about it and and secure your own job through hard work rather than relying on the state of an industry. I'm doing a few cyber security certifications and things at the moment. And I've gone through the same process. Like I'm working towards the exam. It's a $500 exam. I'm like, oh, geez, that's expensive. But then I turn around and think, well, hang on. If I compare that to going flying for an hour, yeah. it's, it's super cheap. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a mind shift. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, absolutely. I'll get the details off you. And, and again, I'll put them on the, on the links to the, the show notes here and people can follow along with those. In the back of my mind, as you're talking, sure. I'm thinking too, if there's enough interest, I might try and find a way if we can get a like a live question and answer session hooked up at some point with you and we'll share a link, especially on, you know, once you've got your drone license, how do you then go and actually turn that into, a, into an income? So if there's enough interest in that, we'll, I'll try and tee you up and, and see what we can organize live there for you. No, I'd be very happy to do that. And I, I, I have been toying around with... Um... Uh, with generating uh, a series of, of, of uh, online videos for professional aviators who are thinking of going down this route to, you know, just begin to feel your way into the temperature of the water and, and, and begin to decide, okay, what is the path that I want to take? Because, uh, uh, like I say, the opportunities are so huge and the, t the, the, the different paths are myriad it's hard to, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people out there who go, mm, I sort of know that I've got to start thinking about this, but I don't even know where to begin. And that, and that is something that I enjoy helping with because um, I can be a translator between the two worlds, I suppose, uh, an interpreter. A big part is it's, and again, just where I'm currently at too, you look at the investment that you've made, you know, whether it's dollars or times in a, in a particular skill set and whether it's a sunk cost fallacy, whether that's the right word for it, but to then step away from that to, to start to, to do something which is not what you've currently done, that's the, the challenge I've kind of looked at at the moment. Spot on. Yeah, no, absolutely, Mick, you're right. And, 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 uh, and we do sort of, 
I think two things. One is we forget just how much effort we've put into learning all of those things, how much effort we've put into gaining the experience that we have of, of what happens in a particular place when the weather changes and all of those things. And we forget all of that. And, and it, it is a value that we have. It is a, a value that we have generated within ourselves. Uh, and sometimes uh, you know, we forget how much we know because it's just there. We use that knowledge every day. And, and I think that, that there is a, a great joy, actually, in going, oh, OK, this does have value. Uh, at a time when you are, well, I guess you know yourself, Mick, when, when you're going, hmm, my employment is not as uh, stable as I as I thought it might be. Yeah. Look, it's, uh, Jerry, it's always fun. <laughs> I know we catch up occasionally in bits and pieces there, but it's uh, it's great that we can have a chat and, uh, and again, go into something a little bit different than we would normally uh, cover. So it's just sort of broadening the ideas of, of what's out there. So, uh, thank you again for... Uh, yeah, having the time to, to chat and give us some ideas. No, great pleasure. And um, yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll um, chuck through to you some um, some links and so on, which will include my email. And, and if anybody is thinking down this route, I'm really, really happy to help out in any way that I can. That's fantastic. Awesome. All right, until we uh, catch up next time. Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Jerry has loaded me up with a few things to pass on to you that go along with our chat. I'll tell you about them here, but I also have them all posted up on the rotarywingshow.com website if you look for episode 97. First up, you can get a free chapter of Jerry's book, Film Pilot. This is the chapter that covers the oil fires in Kuwait after the Gulf War in the early 90s. The safety induction that Jerry and his film crew get on the first day is pretty interesting. He covers that in the book. It's uh, it's quite short as they, they get onto the oil fields. The full documentary, Lessons in Darkness, is up on on YouTube. What I've done is I've posted a a shorter clip on the blog, which just has the flying scenes. It's it's actually quite emotional to watch. It has the camera flying in over the burning wells and between the black clouds of smoke and there's sort of orchestral music playing in the background. The desert floor is just black and has, you know, it's just littered with these pools of of oil just sitting there on, on the ground. Given the focus now on, on climate change and pollution, it's, it's actually quite sickening just to, to see it, uh, how much of the smoke is just pumping out in the, in the black sky and just knowing that this damage was all done uh, deliberately. Jerry is running an uh, introduction to mapping course shortly, uh, but these are semi-regular. Uh, they are uh, delivered online uh, live. And this is targeted at what you can actually produce as output from the drones and the software involved and some of the tips of actually how to sell that to, to clients. So there's a link there for that on the on the blog as well. Again, I've also gone and, and got uh, embedded into the blog post there uh, a demo of the type of things that, that Jerry's actually producing for, for clients. So this one is a, a 3D external scene of a, of a house that you can control and pan and fly around and zoom in and out on uh, using your, your web browser. Uh, so if you've got a blog post, you can check that out and, and click on it and interact with it. And it's basically imagery. It's, it's like a 3D model that's just been stitched together uh, from drone imagery and just gives you an idea of what you can actually uh, produce possibly as a, as a product there for clients. You can reach Jerry direct through his email. It's at jerry at jerryg.co or his website, jerryg.co. And lastly, his second book, as we mentioned, is Film Pilot, uh, the subtitle from James Bond to Hurricane Katrina. 
can search for that online or, again, follow the links from this episode or from Jerry's website. If you are newer to the podcast and working your way backwards, then listen to episode 29 to hear the very first interview with Jerry where we cover uh, a lot of the, the flying and a lot of his time there on Search and Rescue. That's it for this one. Thanks for hanging out again. As we head out, a big thank you to those supporting the show on Patreon. You guys rock. Ian, Hal, Stephen, Alidar, Benjamin, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, and Riddell. <laughs>